Welcome to the New Life Millbrook Weekly Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast or other resources, please visit nlmillbrook.com. Let's pray, let's dive in and do all the fun things. Glory to God, we just give you all the praise, glory, and honor. We thank you that you guide this part of our service, just like you have guided through us in worship and an offering and announcement and everything else. Holy Spirit, I ask that you use me today uh, for your glory, for your name, for your power, for your might, for your love and wisdom and everything else. Give us ears to hear your word. Let us take today's uh, conversation that we're going to have, uh, the, the ministry time, God. Let it not be just uh, a bunch of and ahs and tweetable moments, but God, let it be something that impacts our hearts. So we are setting our hearts, Father God, tilling up the ground of our hearts for good ground so that your seed can be sown, Father God, with power and life change. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we have been going systematically, if you're, if you're a nerd and you like systematic theology, systematically through the book of Acts, one verse at a time, one chapter at a time. We have now gotten ourselves into Acts chapter 7, and this is where everything escalates. So far, Jesus has died. He's risen again. He has sent his Holy Spirit. We, we talked through Acts chapter 2. Peter uh, under the utterance of the Holy Spirit, uh, preached a powerful message. Peter uh, and John have been healing people, and everybody hates them for uh, The religious leaders hate them for it, but the people love them. Well, now we saw last week that Stephen uh, decides that he, uh, who is called and anointed by God, he is not an apostle. He is not a prophet, necessarily. He is not a pastor. He is an administrator. In other words, he is not somebody, big air quotes, of somebody of special power, but the Holy Spirit does not need a man or a woman with the title. He needs a man or a woman who is willing to say yes. Do we have any of those today? You got to say yes to his will, yes to his way, yes to his word. And he fills you with his Holy Spirit so that you can change the world. Now, Stephen goes and he begins to work miracles that we found out in Acts chapter 6 through the Holy Spirit. And then these men hated him for it. They despised him for it. So they debated with Stephen. And Stephen, with the wisdom of, of, of God, begins to speak to them. And they no longer could stand in their debate. They fell apart. The smartest, the brightest, the, the, the most brilliant people. And we see right now in our political world debates going on. And they couldn't cut him down. They couldn't trap him. They couldn't set him up for a gotcha moment. The Holy Spirit guided his words. And they hated him for it. So they decided then that they were going to stir up men. Pay people to lie against Stephen. Why didn't they just lie against Stephen? Do you ever wonder that? Why didn't they just go back to the Sanhedrin and say, I heard him say this, and I heard him say that? They were too religious. They, they didn't want to be the dirty people. It's that whole, I'll say something in your ear so that you do all the negative stuff, and I can go, I had nothing to do with it. And Jesus spoke to this while he was still walking the earth that says that if you look with anger and hatred on a man, you've already committed the sin of murder. But they, they only looked at what they do with their own hands. So I can help you do something. I'll, I'll cause you to say something. And they led this man, these men, to lie, blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. It's fascinating to see how the, the council recorded in Acts chapter 7. But I find it even more amazing is Stephen's response because he's not concerned with getting off the charges. He's not concerned about being acquitted. He's not concerned about being found out that he's not guilty. He's more interested in having a moment of proclamation because he's proclaiming who Jesus is and what he's done and explaining the truth in contrast to the false accusations that have been made against him. If you have your Bible, open up to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, uh, and uh, we're going to get through half today. 
I don't know. I mean, we got out. We, we got done with worship early, so I got some time. Right. Acts chapter seven, verse one. It says this. Then the high priest said to Stephen, "Are these things so?" The, the high priest here most likely is Caiaphas. Do you remember that name, Caiaphas? He's the man who also called up Jesus. The same man who sent Jesus to the Romans is now the same man who's standing looking at Stephen, his follower, with threats, with, with power, with already one murder under his belt. What's another one? Are these things so, Stephen? The high priest has invited Stephen now to explain himself. In Acts chapter 6, verses 11 through 14, we see what he was ex- uh, uh, accused of. It was uh, blasphemous words against Moses, blasphemous words against God, blasphemous words against the temple, against the law. And additionally, he was quoted by saying that Jesus would destroy the whole temple and all the customs of Moses. And Stephen never said those things. And does Stephen stand there and go, oh, guys, I think there's been a big misunderstanding. I'm sorry for my words. And he falls down and humbly repents before them and begs for their understanding. No, not even a little bit. Stephen, in response, gives a panorama view of the entire Old Testament history. We, we, we shouldn't think of Stephen necessarily as a, a scholar trying to, to, to point out Jewish history and, and, and explain to the men things they didn't already know. These men were so well-versed in, 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 the, uh, in the five books of the law. Like, they understood everything. They understood the Pentateuch. They understood what was going on. They didn't need Stephen to go, hey, guys, do you know a guy named Abraham? No, tell me all about him. They knew these things. But isn't it funny how they didn't consider their history? I think it's funny how sometimes we do the same thing. Like we talk about history and then we want to airbrush parts out that we don't like. Let's take American history for a little bit. American history has some very, very, very dark moments that we've tried to airbrush out before. And at the same time, let's go back to the American history at the same time. where We can look back and go, it was originally founded with the idea of serving Jesus Christ. Major Ivy League institutions who now mock the idea of God were once key places for seminary. Harvard was a seminary. Think about that. But we want to whitewash that whole thing and and erase parts that we don't like anymore and and undo our history because it's uncomfortable and it's inconvenient. A lot of times we, we do the same thing in our personal lives. A lot of times we look... And we've, we've been saved for a while. We've got some years under our belts, a couple of, of, of uh, disciples maybe that we have processed through, or maybe we've gone to a Bible school, we're taking a Bible class, and maybe we taught a small group or whatever it is, and, and then all of a sudden somebody comes up to tell you some issues in their life, and we're like, oh my word, as if they are, uh, we need an old priest and a young priest, and they're going to throw up pea soup all over the place, and, and, and we forget that we used to have a dirty life as well. Pastor Allen has reminded uh, me at times of, of his history. You know what's one cool thing that I've loved about um, Christmas with the Covas besides having, that sounds like a book, Christmas with the Covas, uh, besides having uh, an abundance of gifts and dad buying his own Christmas presents. But we, we every year we, yeah, he does. Every year in our stockings, there's a piece of fruit. And I love it. I love it because it brings us back to the time when mom and dad were first married and they had nothing. And so to give each other a Christmas gift, they raided the refrigerator and filled it with their fruit. It points back to you can have all of these gifts, but don't forget where you came from. Don't forget what's taking place. And these men who are sitting there now have forgotten where they came from. But Stephen brings up the past and makes them consider 
this big idea at the beginning, and that is this. God never confines himself to one specific place. That is the temple that he's referring to. Because the Jewish people have a habit of rejecting the people that God has sent to them. This is not a defense. Stephen wasn't interested in defending himself. He simply wanted to proclaim the truth about Jesus in a way that everyone could understand, and apparently he was not making a special defense at all with one syllable referring to his accusers and their false witnesses. All he wanted to do was to point back to Jesus. If anything, Stephen seemed to be more of an attorney defending Jesus than he was defending himself. At the same time, those words were with a, just an absolute brilliant spirit, and he led the accusers down this road, this very unique road that if we just blow past, we go, oh, he's just recanting history, the end. No, we have to walk through what he says and what it means to us in 2023. This is also if you can, a fulfillment of a prophecy that Jesus made in Mark chapter 13, 11, when he says, when you arrest you and deliver you up, don't worry about what to say or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given to you in that hour, speak it, for it is not you who speaks, but the Holy Spirit. And right there, Stephen is living and he's breathing this moment. He didn't sit there and scribble down a bunch of ideas. Holy Spirit being... Dwelling inside of Stephen rises up and speaks through him. And that's the same spirit that's inside of you. It's the same thing that's inside of each and every one of you who have received the Holy Spirit. That any given moment, when all the world comes up against you, you don't have to drive down the road and go, if she says this, I'm going to say that. If he does this, I'm going to do that. No, you live your life with peace and your eyes on Jesus, knowing that the Holy Spirit will use you as his mouthpiece to proclaim his word. And they're furious, and I hate to be a spoiler here, but they didn't receive his word. And they killed him for it. If Stephen's goal was to defend himself, he failed. But what I love about this whole thing is in every single story, in every single verse, Stephen finds Jesus. And in verse chapter 2, he begins with the Old Testament and puts Jesus at the center. What he's telling them is that Jesus is doing a new thing. This focus that you guys have been stuck on, the temple, this building, the, the, the tradition, it's now left the building. It's out in the streets. People aren't having to go to the temple to get minister to now. Their shadows are being cast and they're getting healed. The gospel of salvation is being proclaimed. They don't have to come to this one spot. They're going out into the world and preaching. Stephen seemed to have perceived that in order, that the old order of things was passing away and there was a new thing that was taking place. And it becomes particularly clear when he references the temple later on. And this temple was cherished by the Jews. But it was destined to pass away because God was not going to be confined to one spot in one place in one location of the world but his whole glory was going to fill the earth alright so let's dive in verse 2 and he says this is Stephen <clears throat> brethren and fathers listen the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. And he said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives, and come to a land that I will show you. And he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when, he was, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he, God, promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants forever. 
Stephen says the glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. At the very beginning, Stephen emphasizes this first thought, and that is the glory of God appeared. It appears to Abraham before he was in the promised land. It appears to Abraham before there was a temple. It appears to Abraham before there was Jerusalem, before he ever came to Canaan and what they would call Israel today. There was God's glory seeking out humanity. The glory of God appeared in Mesopotamia, not in Canaan. It's a a fun word, Mesopotamia. Sorry, I'm going to go on a unique unique journey here, and I'm not going to go into all the details of, of what it can mean, but this is modern-day Iraq. When he was in Iraq, God spoke to him of a land hundreds of miles away. God spoke to him of a promise when he was hundreds of miles, a promise to a, to a place that he has never seen. A promise to a place that he, has never, that he doesn't have a mind to conceive what it could be. Just think about that. I'm going to give you a land, Abraham. What if it was a horrible land? It wasn't like we have been to the, to, to the beach and we've been down to Destin or to 30A and we've gone to that and we come back home and God goes, I'm going to give you some beachfront property. We understand because we've been there. But what if he just randomly gave you coordinates and you have no idea what that means? What if Abraham thought, what if the land I'm currently in is better than where you're telling me I'm going to go? But God met with him. God positioned himself to meet with Abraham. And here's the first point he wants to make, Stephen. Your temple is unnecessary for God's revelation to be poured out. Can I tell you guys something? While I love to preach and while I love to speak and while I love to unpack the scripture, God can give you revelation at home. He can give you revelation in the car. He can give you revelation on vacation. I get the vast majority of my revelation in two spots, on a lawnmower and in the shower. Why? Most likely because those are the two places where I'm not focused on something else. And God goes, finally, you shut up and I can speak to you. He doesn't need a Sunday morning from 10 a.m. to 12 a.m. for him to speak to you. He doesn't need a Wednesday night service. While he uses those things, and they're great, you have to open your heart to go, God, I want you to speak to me in my night seasons. I want you to speak to me at my office. I want you to speak to me in the car, at home, all the time, God. I open my life for you to speak to me. Stephen wasn't defending, he explained. Look at verse 2 again. It's not as if God only spoke to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. He, he, he appeared when he was in Mesopotamia, but God could have spoken to him all over the place in Sinai or Canaan or all over these other locations. But he appeared to him in a godless nation. There's a single thread that begins the book of Genesis that I think we lose. And that is this. The God of Israel is calling you to a pilgrimage. And that pilgrimage is not to stay comfortable where you are. While you may never geographically leave a location, you should always be on a journey with God. While you may be born in Montgomery and you may live in Montgomery and you may die in Montgomery, your spirit should continually be on a pilgrimage with God. God is leading you somewhere. And can I tell you, if he's not leading you, you're not listening. Because God is a God of a pilgrimage, always taking you from place to place, from glory to glory. Can I tell you a gut check that I continually do? I ask myself, hey, Pete, where are you with God compared to where you were a year ago, two years ago, 
three years ago. And can I tell you, the longer span of time that I've been in the same location, the more humbling I need to go and fall on my face and repent before a holy God. Because if I'm in the exact same spot I am today that I was five years ago, I, not God, I have missed something. Every moment of our lives. I'm not saying every day is an unpacking of unbelievable amounts of revelation, but you should have an experience with God on a semi-regular basis where he speaks to you, he urges you, he challenges you, he convicts you of where you are. He, 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 he moves you into a new area of life, into a deeper relationship, and if we're not seeing that, uh, it's not God's fault. How about this? It's not only that he spoke to Abraham in a godless nation. According to Joshua 24, and your forefathers, Terah, father of Abraham, father of Naor, lived beyond the Euphrates, and they worshipped other gods. Not only is he talking to somebody who lives in a nation that's godless, he's speaking to a man who is surrounded and potentially also not serving the living God. Think about that. The father of our faith is an idol worshiper? Solid possibility. And you think you've got problems? That God can't speak to you? God, the creator of the universe, and this is what Stephen's explaining, God didn't need a temple. God didn't need your fake righteousness. He found a man that was serving false gods in a false nation and said, hey, you're mine now. And think about what he has done in your life. Think about that journey that you have walked through. How full of sin and full of shame and full of doubt and full of unbelief. And then there was this moment where God spoke to you and he said, you are now mine. And we said yes to his word and yes to his will. I was lost as much as a paper plate in a snowstorm. And he snatched me out. And it's a humbling experience for me to go, why me? What, why me? Not because I'm great. Not because Abraham was great. Abraham wasn't righteous in that moment, but because he put his faith in God, it was counted as righteousness. You don't have to be a perfect person. You have to have faith in who God is and what he's calling you to be. And that belief in who he is and what he's calling you to be, he credits your account as righteousness. He takes all the nasty and all the faults and all the lies and all the manipulations and all the sin and all the shame, and he looks back and he goes, but they believed. Now that supersedes their past. And he takes an Abraham and says, start your journey. And Abraham does it without any more issues for the rest of his life. His first jab in the eyes of these religious leaders is that God spoke to Abraham in a time and in a place when others weren't listening and God has spoken yet again and you aren't listening. That's the first jab. It's so refreshing to know that I don't have to be perfect for God to speak to me. It's so wonderful to know that in my humility, and I sit there and wonder why, God, you saved me and you spoke to me and you beckoned me and you called me just like you did all these people here. I appreciate it and I find myself with full gratitude. But can I tell you that's a two-sided coin, though? It's a two-sided coin because I, I, I ask myself this question now. What is God doing now that I'm not listening to? What has caught my attention what has caught my busyness? What has caught my desires and my religiousness that I'm so focused on that now I'm not listening to his current words? I'm just stuck in my routine. That was a big soapbox. Did we finish verse two? No. He told Abraham, get out of your country from your relatives. Come to a land where I'll show you. God said this to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. 
Stephen explains, yet he did not obey fully. He went to Canaan. Before he went to Canaan, he went to Haran. And he stayed there. He stayed in that spot. And did he leave his relatives? No. He took them with him. I'm not going to get into a crazy uh, geography map right now, but if we can picture Mesopotamia, and we can picture modern-day Jerusalem, we can see Haran in the middle. He, he went halfway and stopped. I, I, I wonder if, if in myself, how many moments has God spoken to me and I said yes and amen, and I went halfway and stopped? How many times has he begun to do some, a work in my life and I went halfway and stopped? How many times have I heard him seek my face and heard, me, he heard, heard him say pray and, and do this and do that? And I said, yes, and then I went halfway and stopped. So when God said to Abraham, go to Canaan, Abraham said, I'll give you half. Not so perfect obedience. But can I tell you, Abraham's partial obedience did not take God's promise away. Instead, it meant God's whole, his, his promise was on pause until the fulfillment was done. I, I love that idea because for me, there are moments of life where I, I, I go halfway or I go partial way or I go three quarters of the way. And you know, God has every right when I do that for him to go, well, you broke the agreement. You're out. Maybe not in salvation, but in the promise. You're out. But can I tell you, God does not kick you out. He just says, pause. Until you resume. The moments of my life that I was walking with God and accurate, and this is the cool part, and maybe you can understand, you were walking with God. You were on fire for God. You were serving God, and then you zigged when you should have zagged. Anybody else ever been there? And you found yourself in a bad situation, did you start back over again? No. You pull back to where you left off, and God doesn't go, back of the bus. You're in the back of the line. You're kicked out. Start over. Beg for forgiveness. He says, unpause right where you are. We don't unlearn his experiences and unlearn his presence. All he does is says, you're back on track. Resume. It's the most incredible experience because he doesn't have to kick you out. He doesn't want to kick you out. He's not looking for an excuse to say goodbye, good riddance. He's always saying, come back home. Come back home. Come back home. Abraham never left his family behind. Actually, God left his dad behind. His father dies, and he starts moving again. Abraham will certainly become a giant of the faith, but at this moment, he's not who they have chalked him up to be in the synagogue. Abraham was somebody who grew in faith. He didn't start off as a giant in faith. God gave him an inheritance, but no child. Abraham was both promised the land and descendants, but had no outward proof of either one of those two things. He could only trust God for the fulfillment of those things. I, I, I think it's interesting that it's, this is just God, and it's ridiculous sometimes. <laughs> that God spoke to Abraham a promise into something that Abraham had honestly no rights to, except for that God said, you can have it. He didn't earn something. In fact, the land was occupied. It wasn't like he just walked up and he found a $100 bill on the ground and go, hey, that's mine. Thank you, Jesus. It was somebody else's land. Not only was it somebody else's land, he didn't have anybody to give it to if he took it all over. Okay. This is the equivalent of me going and saying, 
God spoke to me and told me that he's given me all the land from Destin to Panama City Beach. And y'all would look at me and go, oh, bless your heart. We need to call a room that's got padded walls, put him in it, let him sit for a little bit, because that's crazy talk. You see, we, we read the Bible and go, oh, yeah, that's normal. That, God gave him a land. Of course. What a big deal. It's not a problem. Whatever. Yet when, when God promises you health in your body, we lose our mind. When God promises that he can feed you in a famine, we lose our minds. But, oh, for Abraham, yeah, it's no problem. Of course you should believe that, Abraham. Duh. Take the land. How many promises in his scripture have I let go of because they were too big in my mind? How many times has he spoken truth in my life? And I'll sit there and go, you should believe what God says, but internally I can't believe my own. Abraham, one step at a time, just kept going one thing at a, one moment at a time, one day at a time. And who did God tell this to? Did God split the sky open and announce to all the inhabitants, this is God. This land is now Abraham's. You have 30 days to evict. Let's add into it. God made me a promise, if I'm Abraham, of a land that I can't even maintain to a child I don't even have and I'm the only person who knows the secret. That's faith. And Abraham, love this, believed God. Just like we do. Just like we should. God has called you to a land. He's called you to an inheritance. And if I can be so bold, bold as to say, there is an active occupying force in that land. No, God is not telling you to go drive around and find a house you like and take out the residence. <laughs> but God is leading us into a life where we have to understand that our battle is against spirit, not flesh and blood. And my role is to say yes and amen, yes sir, and leave the battles up to God. Abraham heard a, a promise from God. And Abraham stayed up all night strategizing how to take over the land. You know, maybe, maybe he did. Maybe he sat there and goes, all right, so I've got to raise some cattle so I can sell them, so I can buy an army. How many cattle? Maybe he's doing the math. And maybe Abraham got to a point in his life where he goes, I can't do it. Can I tell you, if you can do it, you're thinking too small. If God's called you to something, it's an uncomfortable calling. Because God's not calling you to do something you can do. He's calling you to do something he can do. Because he gets the glory, he gets the praise, because we get to a spot in our lives where we go, there was no way that was happening, but God did something. It was down and out, it was closing the doors, I was dying and I was on my deathbed, but God did something and he's still doing something today. Abraham wasn't special because he was born with a birthright, he was special because he believed in God's word. No. God didn't leave him to strategize, to figure it out himself. In fact, the crazy part is, God says, this is your land. Now leave it. Keep walking. We'll come back to it later on. Are you sure, God? Th think of the promise, the relationships, the income, the job, the health, the house, the car, whatever it is, the promise that you have seen. And the guy goes, you like that? God, I love that. Great. Leave it. And then we go, I rebuke you, Satan. Like, no, I know it's, it's here. It's in front of me. Let me take it. And God goes, no, no, no. We'll, we'll get back to it. Just want to know if you liked it. But that's not how it is. We are like kids who pitch a fit. On Thursday, I picked up my daughter from school, and I told her, we need to get you some more jeans. 
It was my idea. I came up with the idea. I made the decision, and I brought up the conversation. And she says, okay, when? And I said, soon. What does that mean to my daughter? We leave her school and pick up my son in, in half a mile, maybe a mile between the two schools. She's asked me three times when we're going. Like, we're not going today. On Thursday afternoon, we get home. When are we going shopping? Thursday night, can we go shopping? It's bedtime, we have school in the morning. Can we go ahead and go now? Can we wake up early and go? No, McKenna, we're not. Walmart's not even open like anymore. It's not 24. Like I don't know what you're, what you're looking at. Friday, I pick her up from school. We going shopping? Sorry, Friday. I sit down with lunch to her. She announces to the table, Dad's taking me shopping today. <laughs> I gave her an idea. It was my idea. She took it as, I want it now. The amount of times that she has come to me over the past 48 hours to show me her sheen cart, just for subtle hints, of which the $330 that was in her shin cart had one pair of jeans. That's how we are. We, have, we, we pitch a fit when we don't get it right now. I want it now. I, I, I deserve this now. You said it, so it's mine now. And then we don't get it now, and God says the, the worst words we could possibly hear, wait. <laughs> and then we go to the other extreme. It's never going to happen. What's the point of even thinking about it. It's stupid. It was my thoughts. I came up with that. God, I don't hold any grudges against you. I don't blame you. I must have came up with that on my own. You see, on one extreme, we're, we're like a child that is just expecting it now and we get mad when we don't get it now. On the other extreme, we give up. And God's in the middle going, walk the journey with me so that you can experience, because it's not about the thing. I have to tell you guys this. It's not about the thing. The land to God wasn't the point. God could have created more land, better land, anywhere he wanted to. He could have picked up Abraham and dropped him on a perfect island full of everything he could possibly want. But that's not what the point was. The point was, Abraham, we're going on a journey together. Every stop along the way is more important than the finish line. Your life is not about heaven. Your life is about the journey between now and then. Yes. Heaven's taking care of y'all. If you are saved, if you are sanctified, if you believe in Jesus, if you are, are, are doing all those things that he said, heaven's a done deal. Just like for Abraham, Canaan was a done deal. It was finished. But the journey is so much more important. In fact, the story in Genesis is more about the journey of Abraham than it was at the final destination of Abraham. That's what you have to realize. The, the walk with God is what he's looking after. Stephen emphasizes this relationship with God on the basis of faith and not these outward experiences like a temple or a structure or religious customs, or your ephod, or your hat, or your outfit, or how much you gave, or what you did right, or if you, if you tithed enough, you deal like the Pharisees were doing, or were, 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 were fasting in the public like the Pharisees, the Pharisees inside. He's not looking for those things. He's looking for a relationship based on faith. You know, when Abraham was in the land, he didn't make an idol out of his promise either. I think sometimes we do that. I think God gives us a promise. He gives us a blessing or whatever it is, and we have now made that thing our God. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a financial status. Maybe it's a health thing. Maybe it's a... Um, how about this? A spiritual nugget that he's given you. Maybe it's a talent that he's given you. And all of a sudden, his blessing that he's given you has now become the snare in which you are worshiping. We see this all the time. How do I know it's true? Because Abraham had a promise of a son. 
And the question was, will you give it back to me? Or has it become your God? Can I tell you, if you're unwilling to say yes to what God is giving you, it's become your idol. If you're holding on to something for, for, for all of your life, we've exchanged the blessing or the promise for the promiser. Abraham didn't do that, but the Jewish people did. They were borderline worshiping the very temple that he gave them and missing the promiser. They were so consumed with what was the promise that they missed the promise giver. It's the equivalent of us going, we're broke and we're busted and disgusting. And, and God goes, I'm going to give you a job making $150,000 a year. And you go, yes, amen, God. Boom. And then all of a sudden he opens the doors and it's there. And you're happy and your bills are paid and you're driving a nice car for the first time. And you're not wearing clothes with holes because they were worn out, but because you bought them with holes. And then God goes, are you happy? And you go, I'm so happy. And he goes, quit your job. And you go, Satan, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. I'm not going back to that spirit of poverty. God goes, hey, walk away. Walk away. And you go, I don't think I can do that. See, what happens is, is that we, 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 we took his blessing and his promise and we go, I'm going to hold on to this. You keep going on, God, on your journey. I'm going to stay in Haran. I'm not willing to let this part go. What is it? What is it in our lives that we have exchanged from the hand of God? We, we, we gave up his heart for his hand. Like, what was the exchange that we have done here? In verse 6, God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and they would bring, into, bring them into bondage and oppress them for 400 years. And the nation whom they will be in bondage, I will judge. And God said, God, and after they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave them a covenant of circumcision. So Abraham begot Isaac, circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob, the 12 patriarchs. Again, I can just imagine the council listening to Stephen. And they're a little bit annoyed, like, young man, who are you to teach us the history of the Old Testament? We know these things. We get it. First of all, look back at verse 6. His descendants would dwell in a foreign land into bondage. The, the promise would not be light or easy for Abraham or for his descendants. Yet God promised to judge the nation that put them in that spot. Stephen here suggests to the council, here's the big point here, that God knows how to take care and protect his people. First thing, God doesn't need this temple. He can meet you anywhere he wants. Second thing, God knows how to protect his people. He knows how to deal with his people. Yeah, they're going to go into Egypt, and yeah, they're going to be in a bondage, and yeah, it's going to be for quite some time, and, and there's going to be generations who hold on to a promise that they may not see, but I promise you, according to God, he will take care of his people, and he will rest assured that it's all going to be okay. And that's something that these men should have understood. Why are they striking out these, while they're striking out these early followers of Jesus with such hatred and violence? Why were they doing this? Because they thought they had to take care of it themselves. That, remember, Gamaliel, he looks up and goes, if this isn't God, it's going to fall apart. If it is God, you don't want to be against God. Well, they pushed him out. They didn't listen to his advice anymore. And now they have to take it up on themselves. And we're going to stomp out this group because it's what God wants. Because God is retired and he's put us in charge and I've got to do it. And, and, and they're going to catch themselves into this trap that they have to avenge God's word. And they have to do it themselves. And we do the same thing over and over and over again. Something or someone is wrong. And we go, Holy Spirit, take five. I got this. 
Your job is to walk in God's divine order, not to take his seat in judgment. Mm. We're going to wrap up here in this section. They, they decided to use violence. <laughs> they decided to kill. They decided to lie. They decided to do the very things the Ten Commandments told them not to do because they thought they needed to do God's job. That as leaders, that God put them in charge and God was on a beach somewhere taking a vacation. Stephen's trying to remind them that God is big enough to protect himself, his word, and his people. But a lot of times what we do is we we take matters into our own hands. Because God wants us to keep our eyes on him and not the promise. Remember when Peter was called out to walk on the water? Jesus says, come on. And Peter begins to walk on the water. Was, when, Peter, when Jesus said to Peter, come walk out, was that a promise? But what happened when Peter took his eyes off of the promise maker and looked at everything else around it? He then, under his own power, had to figure out how to make himself walk on water, and he begins to sink. What happens is that when we take our eyes off of Jesus and who he is and to his word, and we decide under our own strength that we're going to manage the promise, we kill it. I see this in my life. God makes me a promise. God says something, and I, I hold on to that one thing instead of holding on to God, uh, and, and to God, and I suffocate his promise. Stephen's looking at them, if I can be so bold and saying it like this. You were so concerned about the promise coming you killed the promise yourself. You were so desiring this Messiah to come that you created how in your minds it should come. And when it came, it didn't look like the way you wanted it to look. So the very thing you have been praying for, you killed yourself because it wasn't in the right wrapping paper because it wasn't looking the way that I thought it should look. Because the things that I've been praying for God to do in my life didn't come in my own way and how I perceived and what I thought it should look like. Instead, what ends up happening is that when God's word doesn't happen the way that I think it should happen, I kill the promise instead of adjusting who I am. We pray for patience and God sends the worst moments of our lives. We, we pray for peace and, and, and hard times take over. We, we continually pray for health and it seems like it doesn't happen the way that we expect it to happen. We pray for financial blessings and God says to tithe. And we go, no, nah, it's not, no, I need more. Because what we do is we get this promise from God and we wrap it into a present that we expect it to look like. And if it doesn't look just like that, in that same wrapping, in that same color, with that same bow, we deem it that it's not of God, and we crush it just like they did. But also, I think that Stephen was talking to himself, too. After all, he's standing before the same people who killed Jesus. They've already beat Peter and John. And I think Stephen also is reminding himself that God's big enough to protect me. Yeah. He'll take care of of my life, or he won't. But either way, either way, God has it all under control. See, the goal for Stephen wasn't to get out. The goal for Stephen was to let the truth out, to, to leave it out, to, to, to tell you what's going on. 
And he was so bold as to say, you men have missed the point of this whole thing. God doesn't need a place to speak. And God's big enough to do it his way, even if it's not your way. And you men are standing here being super smart and super religious and super all of these things, and yet you've missed the promise maker. You've missed it all. And you not only missed the promise maker, you've now killed his own promise. And today, as we wrap this session up, where are we at? Have we forfeit the journey, forfeited the journey just so we can hold on to something in Haran, something got comfortable for us and God's continuing to tell us to keep moving forward? Maybe there is a, a promise or a thing or a task or whatever it was that he's put into your heart five years ago, ten years ago. Maybe sin got in the way and shame is now there and whatever it may be and God's looking at you going, hey, come back, we'll unpause it and keep moving forward. Maybe you've also gone to this place where you look at God and go, God, I, I can see now in my life where there's been these moments where I have killed your promise because it wasn't the way that I expected it to be, the way that I deemed it to be. It wasn't comfortable. It wasn't convenient. It wasn't cute because sometimes his promise is spelled W-O-R-K. We don't like that. It's the lottery concept. No. Our role is to have two spots in this sermon right now. Yes to your plans, God. And you are big enough to take care of the path yourself. I don't need to be the driver. And one of the biggest ways we're going to do this is say yes to his plans. And God, I repent to you before, but today, I repent that I keep grabbing the steering wheel and telling you how to drive this vehicle. That I keep grabbing the GPS and trying to tell you which way to turn. That I keep di dictating to you how you should do what you said you would do. God, I let go, and I'm here to enjoy the journey and company with you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for everything that's going on. God, that I think that as, as we are in this moment right now and as we are wrapping this session up, that God, you open our eyes to areas of our lives where maybe you've made a promise that, that we've let go of or that we've doubted or that we pitched a fit about and, and we need to pick back up again. And, and God, today we say we're sorry, we're convicted, we will dive into your word, we will dive back into your way. You know everything. Maybe we're here today, God, and we say that we have also become control freaks <laughs> in, into your plans and into your processes and into your ways. And we just say, God, I, I repent today that I, that I have been um, so controlling, so demanding over how it should look that I've focused so much on the promise, I've lost the relationship aspect of the promise maker. Today, God, we ride shotgun in enjoying your ride instead of dictating your path. We say yes to you, no matter what it looks like, in Jesus' name, amen. We love you guys. We'll pick back up from there next week. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Have a great week.